Salabona, and thanks for listening. Welcome to the Wines of South Africa podcast. I'm U.S. Country Manager Jim Clark. In each episode, we explore some aspect of South African wine by talking with winemakers, winery owners, and other members of South Africa's vibrant wine industry. Today, we're going to put the microscope on one mountain, the Simonsburg. It's named for Simon von der Stel, the first governor of the Cape Colony, and it separates Stellenbosch from Parra. That means it's got vineyards on every side of it, all with different features, but all bearing something in common. Let's introduce our winemakers and let them explain what the Simonsburg is all about. There's three main towns in the winelands of the Cape, Stellenbosch, Paul, and Franz Hoek, and it's more or less like in a triangle. We've got Stellenbosch down at the bottom, then towards your northwestern side you will find Paul, and to your northeastern side you will find Franz Hoek. And the Simonsburg Mountain is basically situated right in between all of these towns, with, I would say, Stellenbosch face the south eastern slopes, and Paul is on the northwestern slopes of the Simonsburg. My name is Charles Kutsia. I'm the Saddle Master at Babylon Sturen. I've been here since 2010. Babylon Sturen is not only a wine farm, we are a tourist destination. So we've got a public garden, an eight-acre fruit and vegetable garden. So people come here on daily guided garden tours. And we've got two restaurants on the property. We've got a five-star farm hotel, a garden spa, and then we've got all these production facilities. We've got our own olive press where we make our own olive oil. We've got a wine cellar in which we make our own wines. We've got a water and a juice plant from which we produce juices that comes from the fruit and vegetables that come from the garden. We bottle our own water from a fountain that's in the Simonsburg. We've got a farm shop where we sell all our products. We've got our own bakery, butchery, cheese room, smoke room. So just a very popular tourist destination all in one. We're actually expanding our cellar. So at the moment we are making the current Babylon Student Cellar only a red wine cellar. And we are building a new white wine cellar across the road at our bottling cellar, so they are busy. I've I've asked them to stop, but it's very difficult to keep them quiet. Yes, I'm sorry. We are closer towards Paul. We also sit on the northwestern slopes of the Simonsburg Mountain. So most of our vineyards look towards the town of Paul. And we are about, I would say, six to seven kilometers outside the town of Paul. We've got like a very flat part, which is about 250 meters above sea level. And then it basically slopes up towards the mountain. And then our highest vineyard is 650 meters above sea level. And I would say on average, the majority of the vineyards would be in the middle. I would say 300 to 400 meters above sea level. If you drive from afar and you look at the slopes of the mountain, there's this little conical hill on our property. Now, back in the day, the farm was granted to its first owner in 1692, which is only 40 years after 1652 when the Dutch people harbored here to create this halfway station. The farm was granted to a guy called Peter van der Beel. And in those days, the people were very religious. So when he received this piece of land, he looked at this little hill that stands out on the property and it made him think about the story in the Bible where the people have tried to build a tower that reached heaven and then God created the dispersion of languages in order to stop them. So this happened in Babel or Babylon 
So it made him think about that story, and so he named the farm Babylon's Torah, which means Babylon's Tower or the Tower of Babel. Hi everyone, I'm JD Pretorius, a cellar master at Warwick Wine Estate. And we're situated on the northern end of Stellenbosch on the Simonsburg mountain and focus primarily on Cabernet Sauvignon, Cabernet Franc and Chardonnay. I've been here since 2019 vintage. Challenging time to start at the end of the drought and the beginning of a global pandemic. So it's been an interesting ride, but we've learned a hell of a lot. That's the one kind of positive out of it. The Simonsburg mountain is the mountain kind of leading north out of Stellenbosch towards Paul. So it's moving further away from the ocean. And Warwick sits on the foothills of the northern end of that mountain. And it creates the watershed, I would say, the edge of Stellenbosch from a kind of very simplistic way of looking at the climatics. And obviously, the further you move away from the ocean, the further you go away from the kind of prevailing cooling winds during summer and the warmer it gets. And we sit around 200 meters above sea level and ranging up on the mountainside up to about 350 meters. So on the lower kind of end of the mountainside. And for that reason, specifically, we focus a lot on Cabernet Sauvignon, Cabernet Franc. Because we are on the warmer side, we find that we get a slow ripening period. But still, for something like Cabernet Franc, that can be quite herbaceous and green in cool vintages, we still have enough ripeness and heat to make sure that we get everything properly phenolic ripe, ripen the tannins, uh, tannins well. And uh, yeah, that's where we're situated in a nutshell. Warwick was founded in 1964 by Stan Ratcliffe, Mike Ratcliffe's father. At the time, it wasn't a winery as such. It was a farm and Stan was a young man. He was 26 years old at the time. And due to take over his father's motors fairs business and just said to him, listen, this is not for me. I don't want to do this. I want to farm. And his dad said, well, you know nothing about farming. How are we going to do this? So ultimately found a farm that he liked in a space that he liked and got a loan from the bank. His dad signed surety for the bank for, I think if I remember correctly, 40,000 pounds, which was quite a lot of money in 1964. So quite a bold move from his dad to put faith in him. And then basically for the first 20 years did whatever he could to pay back the loan. So it was predominantly fruits and vegetables, specifically plums and peaches. And then also a lot of pumpkins and onions and all sorts of cash crops, some pigs, some chicken, and then obviously grapes. And it was historically a grape farm for Stellenbosch Farmers Winery. So up until probably about 20, 25 years ago, sold off grapes to the larger industry. But in that time, primarily to SFW. And then somewhere along the line, met Norma Ratcliffe, Canadian-born lady. They fell in love, they got married, and all Norma wanted to do is make wine. And Stan kept saying, that, listen, you have a very simple answer to this question. Our business is to sell grapes, and as soon as we make wine from that, that won't work. So we know nothing about winemaking, we're just going to stuff up the crop, and then I won't be able to pay the back. So that was the short answer for the first 20 years. And jokingly in 84, he told her that, listen, yeah, okay, we've paid back the bank. We can now play around. So 1984 was the first vintage of a Warwick wine. It's a Cabernet Sauvignon, and that was called Le Femme Bleu, obviously French for Blue Lady. And that is very much the start of winemaking for Norma, but also for Warwick. Unfortunately, a lot of things changed very quickly. For instance, she had a trademark infringement letter in the post the following year that you couldn't use the term, so forth and so forth. So a lot of things changed very quickly. And at that time, the South African industry was quite small and obviously also very male dominant, very Afrikaans dominant. So Norma, being a Canadian woman, really put the cat amongst the pigeons in a good way. She really, I think, transformed the industry towards women and women winemakers probably 30, 40 years ahead of her time. 
She wasn't the first female winemaker. She was one of the first, but she was the first female winemaker as part of the Cape Winemakers Guild. She was the first female chairperson for the guild. There was just a lot of firsts during Norma's time as a winemaker and in the industry. So she really did a lot for the industry, specifically women in the industry and the way the industry operated. And then she handed over the running of the business to her son, Mike, in the early 2000s when Stan passed away. And Mike really then took it to the next level in terms of commercial business and brought out the first lady range and really grew volumes, put a lot of focus onto the hospitality section of the business, bringing a lot of people to the farm. We've got these massive, expansive lawns next to the dam, and it's just a great place to hang out in summer. We do primarily picnics and like very chilled out dining. The idea is that you pitch up at 11 in the morning and leave when we close. So it's really just spending the day, bring your dog, bring your kids. Everybody's welcome. Then 2017, the Ratcliffe family sold the business to an American investment company, LSC's Capital. And we've been going ever since then. So in essence, still very much a young company where we are now, but also very much a young winemaking company in South Africa's kind of general history. There are a lot of places that have got years of experience ahead of us, but very much part of the modern South African and Stellenbosch industry. An exciting new team, exciting new owners, and putting a lot of focus on ultimately their goal is to take South African wine to the world. I'm Dirk van Sel. I'm the cellar master and African sales manager at Glenilly Estate in Stellenbosch. We're located on the foothills of the Simmelsburg Mountain. The property has a relatively short history. The property was bought in 2003 by Madame de Lancassant, who owned Chateau Pichon Lalant in Bordeaux previously. And she was looking for a fantastic South African estate and settled on Glenelly. Madame sponsored the Pichon Lalant trophy on the IWSC, which is the red blender trophy for international wines. And quite a few Stellenbosch producers won the trophy, like Canonkop, Mierlist, Fachlich, and a few times as well. So through this, she got to know quite a few of the South African owners or brand owners and winemakers. And that was really her first connection to the Cape and to Stellenbosch in particular. And that started piquing her interest in Stellenbosch. So then when she wanted to expand to a different country, that's how she decided on Stellenbosch. For quite a few years, looked at Many different farms initially only looked at dedicated vineyard farms, but then found that quite a few farms in the late 90s were quite heavily leaf roll infected in the Stellenbosch area. So going from that, she decided to broaden her search a little bit. So Glenelly was actually a fruit farm, plums and some pears and stuff like that when she bought it. So she saw Glenelly and what really drew her to Glenelly was the fact that a lot of our neighbors are very well known for producing Fantastic reds. She wanted a farm that's Cabernet driven. And there's a lot of our neighbors. If you look at Talima, Tukara, Kanonkop, all of them are close by and they've got serious track records with Cabernet and with wines that have a great ageability. And really an aging potential is a non-negotiable coming from Bordeaux. And then the thing specific about Glenelli is we have this almost amphitheater. We've got slopes that are east facing and then they swing round and then we've got more west facing slopes as well. So you've got a really a nice range of exposures and really nice elevation changes as well. So there's about a 150 meter change in elevation from the bottom of the farm to the uppermost blocks. So we really get a varied exposures and microclimates on the farm. And together with the old soils that we've got in Stellenbosch, these old decomposed granite soils, that just really sealed the deal for her. 
what's really lovely is into this amphitheater, we get the southeast breeze coming through in the afternoons. And obviously, we're not that far away from False Bay. There's plenty of benefits from that breeze. One is it cools the property down, obviously, with its obvious benefits. The other thing is it also dries the vines off. So it helps keeping everything healthy, which is fantastic. We also, when we planted the farm, and what's another great positive about Glenelli, when Madame bought the farm in 2003, they did a lot of research into the different soil types, into the aspects, into the exposures, and everything was planted dedicated to the greater goal of where we wanted to be and where she wanted to take the farm. So we have really pinpointed our specific blocks on specific soil types, and then also for instance, our row directions are all with the wind almost. So the wind can run through the rows. That lowers the damage from the wind, but it also dries off the canopy really, really well. All our vineyards are planted on the slopes because we're on the lower foothills of the Simonsburg. We really don't have any flat portions. And the bit of flat that we have on the farm, we're, those are not planted to grapes. So we've planted on the slopes because the slopes are well-drained. So they're less vigorous than what we'll get in the more in the valley at the bottom of the farm. But on those slopes, you've got really beautiful soils and we've got quite a varied soil structure. They're all based on decomposed granite, but some places we've got more decomposed soils, so more structured clay soils. And then on others, there's a bit more rock component as well. And these come through in quite different texturally into the wine as well. What's also great about the Glenelli property is we're a little bit isolated from the surrounding farm. So we don't really have vineyard neighbors, which really helps and has helped a lot in our fight against leaf roll because we're isolated and because we've got fruit farm neighbors. We can limit the disease and pests in the vineyards a little bit more easily. With that, we've also in the last couple of years moved to organic practices. We've always had a minimal intervention approach in the winery. So using no added yeast or no selected yeast strains, very minimal additions, no acid adds or anything like that. But we've now gone into the vineyard where we also moved to organic viticulture. We're not certified because it's for us, it's not about the marketing side of it. It's just we believe that approach is the best in the vineyards. So we're going full on with natural predators, cover crops, etc., to really bring life back into the soil. That plays such a part in expressing terroir. We feel that that more natural approach in both the vineyard and in the winery is crucial for us to express our terroir. And at the end of the day, that is the goal, is how best can we express the terroir of the Simonsburg. The soils on the Simonsburg are predominantly sandstone and weathered granite and with quite a large subclay base. So where we are in Warwick, a little bit lower down the hill, we've got quite a lot of clay and, and then not a huge amount of topsoil. So the soils tend to be quite heavy. The positive side in that is they have better water retention. So we generally get away with a lot less water. So less irrigation is required during our really warm months, which has obviously helped a hell of a lot during our recent drought. But still with enough gravel and structure to have a well-drained soil so that you don't have any issues with waterlogging, etc. But it does get quite challenging in winter to get into the vineyard, especially on the slopes. We struggle to move around if we need to do a spray or anything during wetter months. So generally try and keep out of the vineyards at that time and really just do some footwork when we have to. When I started here in 2010, we had quite a big portion of our vineyards planted on the flatter parts. And as the years gone by, we've started to use the flatter parts mostly for our Movedre, which we use to make our rosé from. And then some of our Viennese and Chardonnay blocks rose as you go up the slope of the V at about, say, 300 meters. But the majority of our 
crop is about 400 meters above sea level, and there definitely makes a difference in temperature. If you take the highest vineyard, which is 650 meters above sea level, I would say the average temperature up there is definitely five to six degrees cooler than down in the flatter parts. It's more your red clay soils if you go up the slopes of the mountain, where down at the bottom of the flatter parts, it's much more of your white wall, coarse granite soils. So the water retention up on the slopes is a bit higher. When the property was purchased, the soils were analysed, the slopes were analysed, and she really wanted to focus on Cabernet and Bordeaux-centric, for lack of a better word. So by far our largest planting is still Cabernet Sauvignon. And then we've got lesser percentages of Merlot, Cabernet Franc, and Petit Verdot as well. And these are really on quite select soils and selected slopes that work well. She also has a real love for Chardonnay. And a little bit lower on the property, there were some fantastic sites for Chardonnay. That's the only white variety we have planted on the farm is Chardonnay. So we focused on that as well. And then we also planted Syrah. Syrah is doing really well, I think, in South Africa. And it's a variety that does well in Stellenbosch. And then there's also quite long ago in Bordeaux, or not that long ago, really, this tradition of blending Syrah into your Bordeaux blend, especially in the lesser vintages, to flesh the wines out a bit and give it a bit more interest. So in the Glenelli portfolio, our flagship and really the leading light is the Lady May. So obviously named in honor of our owner. And the Lady May is a Bordeaux-style blend, but it's always cab-dominant. It varies from vintage to vintage. You know, in certain vintages, the Merlot or the Cabernet Franc is a bit stronger, so then that might get a slightly larger percentage. But generally, we're loosely between 75 and 90% Cabernet each vintage, and then the rest of the cultivars make up the difference. But that's, like I said, depending on the vintage, we're not following any strict rules on how to blend it. We're led by the wines and by the vintage. And then below Our Lady May, we've got our Estate Reserve range. And in the Estate Reserve range, we've got the Estate Reserve Red. And this is basically a Bordeaux-style blend with a bit of Syrah added into it. And like I said, this really goes back to the old days of Bordeaux where they blended in a bit of Syrah into their blends, especially in weaker vintages. And we really feel it makes for quite an interesting wine. You get the incredible finesse of a Bordeaux-style blend and that purity of fruit, but then with this bit of savoriness and spice from the Syrah, which makes for a really interesting wine that's a great wine to pair with food as well. And then the other estate reserve range wine is our estate reserve Chardonnay. So that's all Chardonnay from the property. The Chardonnay is planted a little bit lower down on the cooler aspects on the property and in most cases slightly less structured soils as well. It's 100% barrel fermented Chardonnay, but all in larger 500 litre formats, very light toasting, limited amount of new oak on that wine. And it's really to express the fruit purity and express the site. And we're not really trying to dominate it with oak or anything that we do in the cellars. Once again, just trying to express the site as much as possible. And then below that, we've got our glass collection range and it's our single varietal range. So it's made up of Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, Syrah, Cabernet Franc, and then a single varietal, unwooded Chardonnay. And these are really just the two expressions of each single variety from the farm. And it's always quite nice to look at the single varietals and then taste the estate reserves after that and the Lady May. And you can really get an idea of how all of these components fit together and make the blends. The glass collection name is inspired because Madame has a real love 
for glass. And we have a beautiful personal collection of glassware going back centuries. We display that in a glass museum at the winery. There's a real beautiful comparison between wine and glass. She says both comes from poor soils, glass obviously from sand, and vines generally planted in the poor soils give you better wine. So both come from poor soils, but through the masterful stroke of man and the ingenuity of man and the creativity, it's turned into something beautiful. So there's a really beautiful link there, and that's the inspiration for our glass collection. I think there's a depth to the tannin structure that you find here. There's a real density to this tannin structure, which obviously leads to wines that have great ageability. And what we strive for with that old world influence we've got is really to marry that power and structure that we get with elegance and finesse. So we don't pick too late. We just pick at finale ripeness, but we don't leave it too long. We don't want to get any of those sweeter, jammy flavors. We just want to get the beautiful fruit purity coupled with the incredible structures that you get from the farm. The Simonsburg, I think, definitely has a style. Probably the most consistent variety across all four sides of the mountain would be Cabernet Sauvignon. And in my mind, you can drill it down to one thing, and that is tannin. These wines are super, super concentrated, and they have this incredibly rough and masculine tannin. So that's obviously a kind of unique point to it, but it also is quite a challenging thing to manage that tannin into something that's accessible and drinkable without being overpowering. But that's something I find from where we are on the northern end down towards the southern side, towards where Glen Ellie, Tukara, Salima, those areas, and then around the back, Babylon's Turin, etc. It's very much the signature of all of these wines is their tannin structure and their density of fruit, especially when you compare it to the Helderberg, which is on the other side of Stellenbosch, closer to the ocean. There you'll find much more floral elements into the wine. They're a little bit fresher. They're a little bit lighter. They don't have this masculine tannin and they're a little bit more kind of they're finesse in that Cabernet Sauvignon structure. Our portfolio has definitely shrunk in the last seven years. It's also gained a few products where we felt there was a gap in the market. We've got a, a quite a nice active wine club, subscription-based wine club. So a lot of the wines are designed and made for the wine club only. So there are probably two or three wines that won't make an actual a standard release every year and that predominantly sell through the club and then the tasting room from when people come and visit. But generally speaking, it's very much focused around the First Lady wines. There's a Cabernet Sauvignon and a Pinotage in that range from a Reds. Pinotage is a new release. And then a Sauvignon Blanc Chardonnay Rosé that very much forms, I would say, probably 70% of our business, especially on the more commercial level. And then a middle tier of a Cape blend, so Pinotage-based blend, along with a red blend with some Cinso, Bordeaux-styled Sauvignon Blanc. And then on the top tier, we focus very much on not necessarily single vineyards, but very much site-specific. So the Cabernet Franc is a single vineyard. The Chardonnay is made up of three vineyards. Cabernet also three vineyards. And then the Trilogy, which is the blend of the best on the farm. A Cabernet Franc-driven Bordeaux-style blend with some Cabernet Sauvignon and Merlot. And that very much is the core of, of the portfolio. And then there's a Chenin Blanc and a single vineyard Chenin, a, a Nascenso uh, and some Cap Classique that we do primarily for the hospitality center or the club, which adds quite a nice bit of spice into that subscription model. It's not something that gets repeated every year and it's that's nothing you can't find off-site. It's a nice way to attract people here and they feel, feel a little bit special when they get something that they can't find in the supermarket type of thing. Cabernet Franc is a big part of our production and our story. It comes from 
about 35 years of knowledge of the variety. It was one of the first wineries in South Africa to make single variety bottling. So 1989 was the first bottling of Cabernet Franc for Warwick. And that really has given us a lot of history and a lot of data on the variety, whereas a lot of places only really started in the early 2000s. And making it as a single variety for all those years has really enabled the winemaking team and the viticultural teams to know what works and what doesn't work. So in 2015, we made the call to make the trilogy a Cabernet Franc-based blend. And there aren't many Bordeaux based on Cab Franc in, in Stellenbosch, and there certainly aren't very many on the Simonsburg. So it does add a bit of a uniqueness to the wine. It also pushes it away from just general stylistics of all of the other blends in that quite heavily contested Bordeaux-style blend, especially in Stellenbosch. So it's quite a nice, unique point. And I think the reason it does well on Warwick, like I said, we're on the northern end of town, so it's pretty warm. And a lot of our vineyards basically sit on a little apex, a very small little hill. All the Cabernet Sauvignons we plant on the one side, and they face north. So that's our warmer slope. And then the Cabernet Francs we plant on the southerly slope faces towards False Bay. And the nice thing about that is you get a little bit more freshness in that Cabernet Franc than you do in Cabernet Sauvignon. But you still need a lot of ripeness because it ripens almost a month earlier than the Cabernet Sauvignon does. So you really have a short growing season. And if it's in a space where it's too cool, you get quite a pronounced herbal element to the wine but more to my dislike is the tannin structure it becomes very chewy and hard kind of green tannin whereas here i find we've got a way of ripening the tannins that are quite exciting and that really works well and still within moderate alcohols i don't say our alcohols are low but we can pick anything from 13 and a half to 14 and a half without excessive herbaceous characters and green tannin and that really is quite a nice space to play and make wines that are a little bit more fragrant, a little bit more floral, a little bit fresher than the straight Cabernet Sauvignons are. And that really does add quite a nice element to the blend and obviously also to the single variety wines. Pinotage does really well, obviously, our neighbors can on are at the forefront of Pinotage. And I think it's also a variety that is a kind of downfall is its own success and the fact that it grows so well everywhere people planted it everywhere but i definitely find it does better on the simonsburg than it does a lot of other places i think tannin structures is probably the variety's weak point it can have this aggressive bitter tannin Uh, and again i think on the warmer side of town you can get those tannins riper in most vintages where in the cooler sites you you don't so you need to control that growing conditions not too warm because then the sugar runs away with you and you get alcohol before you get any other form of ripeness you just have sugar ripeness whereas there seems to be enough coolness in the nights but still warm days to really ripen that tannin structure but it's a challenging variety and it's a variety that i find that morphs probably the best to its site as long as you can control its vigor. So most of the pinotage on the Simonsburg are planted with bush vines. That's a natural way of controlling its vigor and its yield. And once you do that, then you really make some interesting wines. And then there's a lot of places across the country that are really making unique and interesting styles. Even Elgin now, guys are making more finessed styled wines and But you need to control the viticulture, you need to control the growth and the cropping because it's a variety that can crop very high and then you just make these thin and really rough wines. And I think the bush vines on the mountain here are very much key to that success. Norma was the first to coin the phrase Cape Blend. There's no legislation on what a Cape Blend is. 
But basically, the common consensus is you need some pinotage in there, but there's no varietal breakdown. I think if memory serves, uh, Simon Sich's uh, Adelberg was the first pinotage-based blend. That came out in the 70s. But Norma coined the term Cape Blend, which she used from 1994 on the first vintage of the three Cape Ladies. The first one was a blend of Pinotage, Merlot, Syrah predominantly, and very much created a little life of its own. For a short period of time, we changed the blend to a straight Bordeaux, Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, Cabernet Franc. And then we actually got a lot of negative feedback from our markets, especially the export markets, saying, oh, guys, the reason we like this and we have this on the list is because it's a Pinotage blend, which we all found fascinating because generally people are very quick to tell you how they don't like Pinotage and how difficult it is to sell and how this and how that. And so as soon as we took it away, we got a lot of people asking for it to come back, which was quite interesting. So 2017, we reverted back to the Cape Blend model. And then going forward, that'll stay the plan. I think Phil's quite a nice space in the portfolio and quite a unique style, obviously, in the world of wine. I think lately there's a big drive towards showcasing other wine areas, not only our side of the mountain, even if you go much further, like the Swartland lately at our young wine show, I think one of the best whites was a wine from the Orange River Appalachian, which is like almost six to seven hours north of where we are. So I think we are definitely getting more attention, and I think that's a good thing because it shows the diversity of South Africa as a wine country and moving away from this whole idea of only Stellenbosch making good wine. Stellenbosch makes brilliant wines, but I think all the wine areas are now starting to produce brilliant wine. On Babylon Sturen, we've got 13 different varieties planted here. Four of them is white, so that's Chardonnay, Semillon, Dunier, and Chenin Blanc. And then on the reds, we've got all the five Bordeaux. We've got Shiraz, Morvedre, Pinotage, Pinot Noir. And the Babylon Sturen wine range consists of 10 wines, four whites, four reds, one rosé, and one sparkling wine. We've got a normal Babylon Sturen range, which consists of a white blend, which we call the Candide white blend which is a blend of all the white varieties we have on the property, which is Chenin Blanc, Chardonnay, Semillon and Beauny. Then we've got a straight Chenin, we've got a straight Beauny. And then we've got in our flagship white range, we've got a wooded Chardonnay. Then we have a Rosé that's made from a Vedra, which is one of our most popular wines and also the wine that we produce the most. I think we make a brilliant Chardonnay. Obviously more of a neutral variety that can handle the slightly warmer temperatures better. That's the reason why we don't have something like a Souvenir Blanc, for instance, because I think Souvenir Blanc is more situated for the cooler side on the other side of the mountain. Yeah. And then on the red side, we've got a blend called our Barble Red Blend, which is like the Candide White. It's a blend of all the red varieties we have on the property, which is all the five Bordeaux, Cabernet Souvenir, Cabernet Franc, Malbec, Petit Verdot, Merlot, and then also Shiraz, Pinotage, Mavedre, and a little bit of Pinot Noir. Every year that blend differs depending on the production. So some of the years there will be less cab or no cab, but the idea is to blend everything together. On the flagship side, we've got a red blend, which is called the Nebuchadnezzar, which is a blend of all the five border varieties. And then we've got one sparkling wine, which is a Blanc de Blanc, and we call it the Sprunkle, which means sparkle. Then we've got a straight cab, a Cabernet Sauvignon, a straight Shiraz, and if you look at our Shiraz, I think that expresses our terroir 
the best because if you compare us to the Stellenbosch side of the Simonsburg, I think our temperatures on average are maybe one to two to three degrees higher. And typical variety like Shiraz fits our terroir and where we are situated really, really well. I know it's a bit of a cliche. Apparently everyone all saying we're not doing anything in the cellar, but that really is the approach. The first vintage in the winery was 2009. And since then, they've never ever used a selected yeast strain or a cultured yeast strain in the winery. So we're really 100% natural yeast in the winery, which I think is great. And that just helps us to express our terroir a bit more. And as the vineyards get older, as they get more maturity, it's exciting to see how that develops and how the tannin structures of the wines comes through. And then we as a winemaking team constantly have to look at how we extract them and how we treat them in the winery to get the best out of it and to get the best expression of each site. Because with the soil differences, something that applies to one block doesn't apply to a block a few hundred meters down the slope or along the slope where the soil and the aspect is slightly different. So it's about fine-tuning that block-by-block approach, both in the vineyard and in the cellar. Most of our property was planted in 2004 and 2005. Those vineyards are coming into a beautiful age now, and then we're busy looking at our current layout of the property. And the vineyard is a long-term business, so we're planning for the next 20 to 30 years on the farm. So looking at which vineyards should we uproot in the next couple of years and where to plant with the knowledge that we have now of the last more than 10 vintages. We've got a good idea of what is working best where, and we can really refine clones, et cetera, going forward. Fine-tuning the approach in the vineyard plantings more. And then, like I said, we're about three years ago, went 100% organic in the vineyards. And I think with organics, it always takes a bit of time for the soils to get back to full health, et cetera. So I'm really excited to see how that's going to pick up in the next few years and how that translates into wine. I always feel that the vineyard that is treated as naturally as possible eventually expresses itself better in a bottle of wine as well. I think the Simonsburg has been a bit neglected in terms of investment in the last probably 20 years, specifically if you compare it to the Helderberg side where there's been a lot of influx of Real big estates, people pumping in a lot of money into infrastructures and these beautiful tasting rooms. And suddenly in the last probably seven years, there's been quite a lot of activity on this side of the mountain, which is very exciting. There's a lot of vineyards being planted. And that to me is great. That's the focus. We haven't seen a huge amount of new tasting rooms popping up and things like that. But the money is going into the right place, in my opinion, and really going from our most kind of valuable resource, which is our vineyards. So there's a lot of focus on leaf roll and the managing thereof because this section of town is quite badly infested with that. People are putting a lot of money into pulling out old virus-infected vineyards and replacing them and keeping them clean. And I think that's super exciting. There's suddenly this new life and resurgence, and it's very much that kind of rising tide lifts all ships feeling at the moment where there's a lot of energy. And I think that's great, especially from a viticultural point of view. That is to me is probably the most exciting bit about what's happening in Stellenbosch at the moment is there's a lot of resurgence, not only on our side, but there's a lot of focus into planting vineyards. And during the drought, it seemed like people weren't reinvesting in vineyards and they were looking at alternatives, other crops, etc. And now you see those vineyards going back into the ground. And I think that's great to know that there's another 20 to 50 years ahead of us and on a large scale because of A few years ago, it was seeming like a lot of marginal farmers were unsure of the future, definitely with vineyards. And it's great to see that that kind of uncertainty is over and people are really putting a lot of effort in from the ground up. I hope you enjoyed this in-depth look at the Simonsburg. 
You can find links to the wineries we spoke with and other information at our website, wosa.ux. Just click on the podcast tab. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends. Or better yet, go to the platform where you found it and leave a review. That will help more people discover it and discover South African wine. Next time, we'll head north a bit to an area that's not only making great wines, it's also home to the great majority of South Africa's vine nurseries, supplying the cuttings that allow the industry to plant its vineyards and thrive. I hope you'll join us as we take a visit to Wellington. Thank you.